Uh, coming to Mark 15, we've seen that Jesus has been condemned by the Jewish authorities and He's now being sent to the Gentile rulers for their judgment. By the way, the condemnation of Jesus by the Sanhedrin was only done on the basis of the truth. He was condemned to death for claiming to be who He is and who they said He is not. There were no charges worthy of any sentence. When they sought to kill Him, they could do so only on the facts of His person, His identity. Someone wants to talk about identity politics, check this out. The reality of His person. They condemned Him due to their unbelief, not on the basis of any wrong that He had done. Now, if you were here last week or you heard it, then you know that I had a problem with my notes. I got lost somewhere. And uh, Paul helped me out with with one particular reference. But I need to back up a little bit uh, to the previous chapter, the end of the chapter, where Peter denies Jesus three times. Denies that he knows Him. Has anything to do with Him. So we saw that Judas betrays Jesus. Peter denies Him. One repents and is restored. The other continues on in a cowardly and destructive course. In Matthew chapter 10, verses 32 and 33, Jesus says to His apostles as He's about to send them out two by two on a mission, uh, verse 32, He says, Therefore, whoever confesses Me before men, him I will also confess before My Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. There is condemnation with the denial of Jesus. It's unbelief. Peter denies Jesus but is restored to faith. If someone repents of this denial before it's too late, they will also be restored as Peter was restored. Denying Jesus is not an unforgivable sin. It's not a dead-end situation. In uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11-13, through 13, Paul writes to Timothy and says, This is a faithful saying. If we died with Him, we shall also live with Him. If we endure, we shall also reign with Him. If we deny Him, He also will deny us. So, quoting Jesus' words. If we are faithless, He remains faithful. He cannot deny Himself. God remains the same. You know, He's never going to be unfaithful to anything that He is in His person. Any promises He's made to us. He can't deny Himself. In Second Peter chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, it says, There were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them. These false teachers are deniers of Jesus. And bring on themselves swift destruction. But he paid the price for them, the same as he did for all others. He says, many will follow their destructive ways because of whom the way of truth, the truth will be blasphemed. So, Peter denies Jesus, but he repents and was restored to fellowship with him and became a strong leader. He became a rock in the early church. Jesus foresaw this. He named him the rock when he first met him. You know, So he called him something that he certainly was not at that time. And he does the same for us. He calls us saints, you know. A saint means to be made holy and he has made us holy in his sight through justification 
but uh, we're not yet at that place where we should be called saints. I mean, I'm not. You might, you may be. <laughs> uh, but God sees the future. He sees the end from the beginning, and so He knows we're going to come to that place because of His work, where we will be saints in the prime sense of that word, holy as He is holy. Well, there were others at this time who believed also, but they did not openly confess Jesus out of fear. We see more about this in the Gospel of John. In John 12, verses 42 and 43, it says, Nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believed in Him. And this was uh, after the, He raised Lazarus from the dead. But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess Him. They didn't openly confess their faith in Him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. For they love the praise of men more than the praise of God. Uh, well, we'll see in a little bit. Acts uh, chapter 6 and verse 7, we find that the word of God spread. This is after the uh, deacons are uh, ordained. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. So we know that many even of the priests came to believe after the resurrection. But many people... They they believed in him. They believed he was the Messiah, but they were like, I don't want to tell anybody because you know I could get put out of the synagogue or excommunicated from the community. Is basically what that amounts to. Many feared the Jewish leaders who were being excommunicated from the synagogue and the community. They didn't want to openly associate themselves with Jesus because it would bring negative consequences. Being a secret believer is not really an option. It is true that in times and places of persecution, more care and wisdom must be taken concerning who to speak to and when, uh, but we cannot hide our light under a bushel basket. And the added care we exercise is not about ourselves, about preserving our own lives, but about the leading of the Lord. Bushel basket Christianity is a reality. But the basket must come off if we are to be faithful to the Lord Jesus. Someone might say, hey, it's not that I don't love Jesus. I just want to be um, part of the crowd. I just want to be accepted. But the basket must be thrown off if we are to be faithful to the Lord. Rejection may follow. It may not. But we must bear His reproach if required. And we don't know if it's required until we speak up for Him. If they ridiculed Him, they will ridicule us. In Hebrews chapter 11, verses 24 through 26, speaking of Moses, he says, By faith Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He had it made in Egyptian terms, you know. I mean, son of Pharaoh's daughter, you can't get much higher than that, especially as a Hebrew. Choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. He identified with the people of God. Esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. So even the reproach that would come from identifying himself um, was greater riches than those treasures in Egypt. In Hebrews 13, verses 11 through 15, we're told the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Therefore, let us go forth to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we have no continuing city, 
but we seek the one to come. Therefore, by him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. And then in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus speaking, Sermon on the Mount, verses 14 through 16, he tells them, You are the light of the world. This is his followers. A city that's set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. We have some other examples from John's Gospel. In the case of the man born blind, his parents were concerned about being put out of the synagogue. And you recall he was, uh, Jesus healed him, this guy who was born without sight. He, he may not have even had any orbs <laughs> because Jesus makes clay from mud and puts it on his eyes. You know, he may have, that may have just been a miracle of creation. Uh, certainly a miracle of healing at the very least. Um, but they call his parents, the Pharisees call his parents because they want to know if he was really born blind. They don't believe it. They don't believe this miracle. In verse 18 of John 9, he says, The Jews did not believe concerning him that he had been blind and received his sight until they called the parents of him who had received his sight. And they asked them, saying, Is this your son who you say was born blind? And then how does he now see? And his parents answered, answered him and said, well, We know this is our son. We know he's born blind, but by what means he now sees, we do not know. Or who opened his eyes, we do not know. He's of age. Ask him. He will speak for himself. Don't, don't get us involved in this. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had agreed already that if anyone confessed that he was Christ, he would be put out of the synagogue. This is equivalent to being excommunicated. You know, they wouldn't just be not allowed to attend the synagogue, but they would be uh, isolated from uh, Jewish society. We know of some other secret disciples who come forward after Jesus is crucified. They put themselves in danger in order to honor Jesus in his death. Uh, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea come to bury the body. You know, earlier on, we know Nicodemus came to Jesus by night and he told him, Oh, we know you're a teacher from God because nobody could do the things you're doing unless God had sent him. And Jesus says, Oh, thanks a lot. That, that really pleases me. No, Jesus says, Unless you be born again, you can't see the kingdom. And later on, John chapter 7, verses 50 through 52, Jesus, well, the, the, the officers of the temple were sent to arrest Jesus and they come back empty handed and the Pharisees asked him why didn't you bring him and said no man ever spoke like this man and the Pharisees are upset are you becoming his disciples too you know and so uh, they're beginning to castigate Jesus and it says in verse 50 Nicodemus who came to Jesus by night being one of them so he was in the council there he was a Pharisee as well sent to them does our law judge a man before he hears him and knows what he's doing? So he takes a chance. He speaks up for Jesus. And they answered and said to him, Are you also from Galilee? Are you a mountain hick? You know, a lake hick? Search and look, for no prophet has arisen out of Galilee. And they were wrong about that. So Nicodemus speaks up here in defense of Jesus, and he's rebuked. After meeting with Jesus, he likely went from being a highly respected teacher among the Jews to being someone who was... A little bit off because of his view of Jesus. 
We hear no more about Nicodemus until after the death of Jesus, when he joins Joseph of Arimathea in burying the body. This is in John chapter 19, verses 38 through 42. It says, After this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took the body of Jesus. He's coming out in the open now. He's, he's abandoning his secrecy, his secret discipleship. And Nicodemus, who at first came to Jesus by night, also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds. I think they estimate, you know, 75 to 100, somewhere in that range. That's because it's in a different measurement than we measured things. Uh, then they took the body of Jesus and bound it in strips of linen with the spices as the custom of the Jews is to bury. And now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. We know from other passages, this is Joseph's tomb or he owns it. So there they laid Jesus because of the Jews' preparation day for the tomb was nearby. And then in Mark 15, our chapter, uh, that we're getting ready to start down, verse 43, it says... Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent council member, so he was a member of the, the Sanhedrin, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, coming and taking courage, went into Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. This indeed took courage. Word would get back to the chief priests, elders, and scribes about what he had done, and he would likely be dealt with. Perhaps expulsion from the council and even the synagogue. Now, by the way, neither Joseph of Arimathea nor Nicodemus was present at the trial of Jesus, for we are told that all voted to condemn him. And in Mark 14:64, we read that they all condemned him to be deserving of death. Apparently, some were not invited to the meeting. But Jesus is not yet dead or buried in our narrative this morning. After being condemned in the illegal trial, he sent to Pilate for execution. The Jews had lost the ability to carry out capital punishment. A mob would still stone someone occasionally in the heat of the moment like they did with Stephen. But the Romans would try to quell the violence and did not allow them to try men for capital crimes. So Jesus is led away to Pilate early in the morning. Mark 15 verses 1 through 5. Immediately in the morning, the chief priest held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus, led him away, and delivered him to Pilate. And somebody said, it's never a good idea to, to lead Jesus. Yeah. And we see that a couple of times in this passage, in this narrative. Then Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered and said to him, it is as you say. And the chief priest accused him of many things, but he answered nothing. Then Pilate asked him again, saying, Do you answer nothing? See how many things they testify against you. But Jesus still answered nothing, so that Pilate marveled. This is totally unusual. He's never encountered this before. In the morning, the chief priests, elders, and scribes try to salvage some semblance of adhering to the law because the night trials were illegal. So they're, they're trying to you know, build this up. Uh, by holding this consultation with the whole council of those present, like we said, some were likely not informed or invited because they knew where their sympathies lied. The Sanhedrin. So uh, there's no legality to their proceedings still. 
Lane says, The detail that Jesus was delivered to Pilate's forum early in the morning is a significant index of the historical accuracy of the tradition. It was necessary for the Sanhedrin to bring its business to Pilate as soon after dawn as possible because the working day of a Roman official began at the earliest hour of daylight. I didn't know that. You know, if I was a Roman official, I'd probably wanted to start later. (laughs) Legal trials in the Roman Forum were customarily held shortly after sunrise. Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? He's probably amused by the accusation. Here's this rather humble-looking fellow before him whom the Jews are accusing of insurrection. And Jesus says, yes, you're correct. Hey, yeah, what you said. Mark gives us a very condensed version of Pilate's encounter with Jesus. John, again, gives us the most extensive account. In John 18, starting in verse 28, 28 through 38, says, Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas to the praetorium, and it was early morning, but they themselves did not go into the praetorium, lest they should be defiled. They don't go into this Gentile place, but that they might eat the Passover. And Pilate then went out to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? And they answered and said to him, If he were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him up to you. Trying to avoid the issue. (laughs) Hey, look, just take our word for it. You know, he's he's an evil guy. We brought him to you and you need to do something with him. And Pilate says to them, You take him and judge him according to your law. Therefore the Jews said to him, It's not lawful for us to put anyone to death that the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled, which he spoke, signifying by what death he would die, because he talked about being lifted up from the earth, and as Moses lifted up that serpent in the wilderness, death by crucifixion. And Pilate entered the praetorium again, calling Jesus, and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? So this was the accusation that came forward. You know, in the, in the night trial, it was blasphemy. The Romans didn't care if somebody blasphemed Yahweh, you know. And that was not going to be a capital crime they could take to Pilate. So they finally said, well, he, he said he's the king of the Jews. And he's trying to you know, set up a kingdom and take over Rome, etc. So he says, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answers him, are you speaking for yourself about this? Or did others tell you this concerning me? And Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? And Jesus answered, My kingdom's not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews, but now my kingdom is not from here. When he comes back to set up his kingdom, his servants will fight. Well, they won't need to. He'll slay them, the wicked, with the sword out of his mouth. Now my kingdom's not from here. And Pilate therefore said to him, Are you a king then? And Jesus answered, You say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I've come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Here's an opportunity for Pilate. And Pilate says to him, What is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no fault in him at all. So here Pilate's standing on principle, but his principles are not very strong. And he, this is the conclusion he comes to every time. I find no fault in him at all. There was nothing here for Jesus to be uh, executed for. 
Jesus is not defending himself against the charges here when he says his kingdom is not from here. He knows, and Pilate knows very quickly, that the charges the Jews are bringing against him are bogus. Uh, Mark 15.10 tells us he knows they brought these charges out of envy. They were envious of Jesus. He had this great following. But Jesus is witnessing to the truth before Pilate. He's concerned for Pilate as he is for every man. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, uh, verses 11-14, through 14, Paul writes Timothy and says, You, O man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. Flee the things of the flesh and idolatry and pursue these things. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life to which you were also called and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Confessing the good confession is, yeah, Jesus is Lord. He's been raised from the dead. He says, I urge you in the sight of God who gives life to all things and before Christ Jesus who witnessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate. That's what we're reading. (laughs) Jesus witnessing this good confession before Pilate. The truth. That you keep this commandment without spot, blameless until our Lord Jesus Christ appearing. Now John gives us the continuation of this audience before Pilate in John chapter 19 verses 1 through 15 it says then he took Pilate uh, then Pilate took Jesus and scourged him so he I find no fault in him at all but I'll tell you what I'll beat him real good <laughs> and that should satisfy you and the soldiers twisted a crown of thorns put it on his head and they put it put on him a purple robe and they said hail king of the Jews and they struck him with their hands Then Pilate went out again and said to them, Behold, I'm bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no fault in him. We just beat him up, you know. Maybe that will satisfy you. (laughs) Then Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to them, Behold the man. Here's, Here's your king, guys. Therefore, when the chief priests and officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, You take him and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. He's not guilty. And the Jews answered him, We have a law. And according to our law, he ought to die because he made himself the Son of God. Yeah, this gets Pilate's attention a little bit. (laughs) As it would, should anybody. Therefore, when Pilate heard that saying, he was the more afraid. He was already a little afraid. His wife had sent to him and said, I had a dream about this guy and you should have nothing to do with him. (laughs) But he was even more afraid and went again into the praetorium and said to Jesus, where are you from? I'm from Bethlehem, Galilee. (laughs) Jesus gave him no answer. And Pilate said to him, are you not speaking to me? Do you not know that I have power to crucify you and power to release you? And Jesus answered, You could have no power at all against me unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin. And from then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, saying, If you let this man go, you are not Caesar's friend. Whoever makes himself a king speaks against Caesar. Now, these Roman officials in far-flung lands, they were answerable back to Rome and if there were if there was unrest and riots and things of that sort then they could be actually they could be executed. And so 
Uh, Pilate's already had a couple of times, you know, people complaining about him, and he doesn't want to get in trouble with, with Rome for sure. And when Pilate therefore heard that saying, verse 13, he brought Jesus out and sat down in the judgment seat in a place that is called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. And the archaeologists believe they've uncovered this pavement. It was, and it was the preparation day of the Passover in about the sixth hour, and he said to the Jews, Behold your king. And they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. I mean, that's just an abdication of faith altogether because they're, they're repudiating all the promises of God. The promises to David, the promise that the Messiah would reign upon the throne of David, that he would be, his kingdom would have no end. We have no king but Caesar. Well, it was unheard of that someone accused of a capital crime before Rome offered no defense. And so Pilate is amazed by this. Criminals normally scrambled and clawed to get deliverance from Roman justice. Yet, here was a man whom Pilate knew to be innocent of any charge, but refused to try and deliver himself. Pilate is caught on the horns of a self-preservation dilemma. He's caught between pleasing the Jewish leaders and avoiding a riot, thereby pleasing Rome, and doing what he knew to be right and just. And he makes the wrong decision from a personal standpoint. He condemns himself by unjustly condemning Jesus. And we don't know the ultimate fate of Pilate. He could certainly have chosen to repent, but we have no indication that he did. Uh, and, but that's not definitive since we have very little information about Pilate apart from the Gospels. Bible critics used to question the existence of Pilate, and they speculated that he was a figment of the Gospel writer's imaginations. But archaeological information has been uncovered that confirms that he was the prefect of the Roman province of Judea from 26 to 36 A.D. This was a rather long reign. It was normally about three years. So he was three times the normal period of time there. I don't think he enjoyed it a lot. <laughs> he was always having to deal with the Jewish people, Jewish leaders. There was an inscription found in 1961 at Caesarea Maritima, mentioning Pontius Pilate as prefect or governor, as we would say, of Judea, and connecting him with the reign of Tiberius. By the way, you notice this is in Judea, not Palestine. In the second century, uh, the common era, A.D., the Romans crushed the revolt of Shimon bar Kokhba in 132 uh, A.D., during which Jerusalem and Judea were regained because the revolt had taken those areas. And the area of Judea was renamed Palestina in an attempt to minimize Jewish identification with the land of Israel. It is it's the land of Israel and Judea and Samaria, not the West Bank. That's Judea and Samaria, parts of it. Well, then in Mark 15, uh, verse 6, he says, Now at the feast... He was accustomed to releasing one prisoner to them, whomever they requested, Pilate. And there was one named Barabbas who was chained with his fellow rebels, and they had committed murder in the rebellion. Then the multitude, crying aloud, began to ask him to do just as he had always done for them. But Pilate answered them, saying, Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? You do, don't you? You want me to release you? For he knew that the chief priest had handed him over because of envy. 
But the chief priest stirred up the crowd so that he should rather release Barabbas to them. And Pilate answered and said to them again, What then do you want me to do with him whom you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. Then Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? I haven't found anything evil he's done. But they cried out all the more, Crucify him. You know, at one point, Pilate, I think it's Gospel John, Pilate washes his hands. But he can't wash his hands. He's the one who has to make this decision. So Pilate, wanting to gratify the crowd, released Barabbas to them, and he delivered Jesus after he had scourged him to be crucified. Henry Morris points out Barabbas was a robber, uh, according to John 18.40, as well as a seditionist, Luke 23.25. He committed, he was arrested for rebellion and murder and was thrown into prison. So this is the Barabbas. Um, Yet the priest and the multitude preferred him to Jesus. Pilate, knowing Jesus was innocent, released Barabbas and had Jesus crucified. What a commentary on human nature, or fallen human nature. Jesus literally died in Barabbas' place. So if there was anybody that could say, Jesus died for me, <laughs> it'd be Barabbas. And we don't know anything about his fate either as time went on. As the crowd rejected Jesus, they embraced Barabbas, whose name means son of the father, and who was a terrorist and a murderer. They accepted a false son of the father and rejected the true son of the father. Pilate was hoping to be bailed out of the situation, but to no avail. Everyone in this situation is bent on condemning an innocent man. Actually, the only innocent man. The mob wanted to see someone crucified. I'm not sure they cared who it was. Hey, it's a holiday. Let's celebrate. (laughs) Mobs are some of the most evil groups on earth. The individuals think they can escape culpability for their evil actions by the anonymity of the crowd. We think of the KKK, you know, in our past, and there's still some of them around, I'm sure, but wearing the the white hoods and the cloaks, you know, so that nobody, I mean, if you're proud of what you're doing, why are you covering your face, you know? So it's cowardly to do that. The only ones worse than mobs are those who make political alliances by which they may oppress and subjugate others because they can do so much more in lasting damage. But tyrants and mobs often work together. Tyrants find mobs politically useful. You can tell a lot about a leader by his reaction to mob action. J. Vernon McGee said, No mob is prepared to reason or to use its head or to use good judgment. All they can do is cry out, crucify him. Rebels against Rome, like Barabbas, were very popular with the people. And Pilate's suggestion that he release Jesus actually made them much less likely to request Jesus' release. Well, if Pilate wants that, then, you know, we don't want it. Um, Greek scholar A.T. Robertson says, If one wonders why the crowd was fickle, You may recall that this was not yet the same people who followed him in triumphal entry and in the temple. That was the plan of of Judas' bribers to get the thing over before those Galilean sympathizers waked up. So people had come to the uh, Jerusalem for the feast. We had the triumphal entry and so forth. and, And, you know, they're not getting up at dawn. 
for this trial. They don't know what's going on. They don't know about the arrest or anything else. David Guzik says it was a strange scene. A cruel, ruthless Roman governor trying to win the life of a miracle-working Jew against the strenuous efforts of both the Jewish leaders and the crowd. (laughs) But Pilate's not willing to give too much effort if it meant his own life or prospects would be in danger. We don't immediately get the bizarre aspects of this strange scene. Pilate, weak man that he was, to appease the mob, condemns Jesus to die a horrible physical death. But first, he has Jesus scourged. It's often a preliminary to the main event of crucifixion. And all of this took place, you recall, just as Jesus had said. Back in Mark chapter 10, verses 32 through 34, the the last major warning that Jesus gives to the disciples, he says, it says, now when they were on the road going up to Jerusalem and Jesus was going before them and they, they were amazed. And as they followed, they were afraid. This was in the time frame where they knew that They were plotting to kill Jesus. Then he took the twelve aside again and began to tell them the things that would happen to him. Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the scribes. And they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and scourge him and spit on him and kill him. And the third day he will rise again. So we've we've gotten through most of this. And everything specifically that Jesus said has occurred. It is the plan of God that an innocent man will die a horrible death, a sin-bearing death in the place of every man, woman, and child who will believe in his death in exchange for his life given for them. Jesus is found innocent by the Roman governor and condemned to die by the same. Many times innocent men have been sentenced to death, being erroneously found guilty, but this one was judged to be without blame and was still executed. Better than an innocent man die than that there should be unrest in the land for which Pilate himself might suffer condemnation. Or as the chief priest put it earlier, after Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead in John 11 and verse 47, it says, Then the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council and said, What shall we do? For this man works many signs. And if we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and nation. And one of them, Caiaphas, being high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. I know everything. You don't know nothing. Nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and not that the whole nation should perish. Now this he did not say on his own authority, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. You know, prophesying is not necessarily an indicator of righteousness or salvation, because Caiaphas is not (laughs) either righteous or saved. But he prophesied this because he was in the position of high priest. And God had him say this. And not for that nation only, we're told by John, but also that he would gather together in one the children of God who were scattered abroad. So, uh, including all of us, all the Gentiles and so forth. He died for us as well as for that nation. And then from that day on, they plotted to put him to death. So in Mark 15, uh, 16 through 20, it says, Then the soldiers led him away into the hall called Praetorium, and they called together the whole garrison, They clothed him with purple. They twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head and began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews. Then they struck him on the head with a reed and spat on him and bowing the knee, they worshipped him. 
mock worship. And when they had mocked him, they took the purple off him, put his own clothes on him, and led him out to crucify him. Well, the imperfect tense of the verbs here indicates that they kept on smiting him and spitting on him. This was a prolonged activity. And then in Mark 15, verses 21 through 32, it says, Then they compelled a certain man, Simon a Cyrenian, the father of Alexander and Rufus, as he was coming out of the country and passing by to bear his cross. And they brought him to the place Golgotha, which is translated place of a skull. And they gave him wine mingled with myrrh to drink, but he did not take it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments, casting lots for them to determine what every man should take. And it was, the, it was the third hour, and they crucified him. And the inscription of his accusation was written above the king of the Jews. Supposedly why he was crucified. With him they also crucified two robbers, one on his right, the other on his left. So the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And he was numbered with the transgressors. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads, and saying, Aha, you who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priests also, mocking among themselves with the scribes, said, He saved others himself he cannot save. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, Descend now from the cross that we may see and believe. Even those who were crucified with him reviled him. So Simon the Cyrenian was compelled, compelled to bear Jesus' cross. He was no doubt in town for this feast. Now Simon's sons, Alexander and Rufus, apparently became well known in the early church. He's, they point out this is, this is their dad, you know. Uh, Spurgeon said his name was Simon the Cyrenian. And where was that other Simon? What a silent but strong rebuke this would be to him. Simon Peter, Simon son of Joseph, Jonas, where wast thou? Another Simon has taken thy place. Sometimes the Lord's servants are backward when they are expected to be forward, and he finds other servitors for the time. If this has ever happened to us, it ought gently to rebuke us for as long as we live. Brothers and sisters, keep your places, and let not another Simon occupy your room. They bring Jesus to this place called Golgotha, or place of a skull. In Latin, the word is Calvary. They offer Jesus wine mixed with myrrh, a mild pain reliever, which he refused. Uh, The wine mingled with myrrh was a drug to help deaden the awful ordeal of the cross for those about to die. It's interesting to note that when he was born, wise men brought him myrrh. And when he died, he was offered myrrh. And when he was buried, they buried him with myrrh and spices. Myrrh speaks of his death. Myrrh was often used as a spice to combat the odor of decay. Lane again mentions, according to an old tradition, respected women of Jerusalem provided a narcotic drink to those condemned to death in order to decrease their sensitivity to the excruciating pain. This humane practice was begun in response to the biblical injunction of Proverbs 31, verses 6 and 7 where it says, Give strong drink to him who is perishing, and wine to those in bitter distress. Let them drink and forget their poverty, and remember their misery no more. Cole says, The local sour wine was laced with myrrh. This would give it a bitter taste, but a soporific or sleepiness effect. This is explained. Uh, this explains the reference to Gaul. He would not take any anesthetic 
All his faculties must be unclouded for what lay before him. Spurgeon says, Was it out of love to suffering that he thus refused the wine cup? Ah, uh, no. Christ had no love of suffering. He had a love of souls. But like us, he turned away from suffering. He never loved it. Why then did he suffer? For two reasons. Because this suffering to the utmost was necessary to the completion of the atonement, which saves to the utmost. And because this suffering to the utmost was necessary to perfect his character as a merciful high priest, who he was to compassionate souls that have gone to the utmost of miseries themselves, that he might know how to succor them that are tempted. We read in Hebrews chapter 7, verses 24 and 25, He, because He continues forever, speaking of Jesus, has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, He is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. They gambled for His woven cloak rather than tear it to divide among them. Psalm 22, verses 15 through 18. Uh, is a prophecy of this. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue cleaves to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. So he's crucified the third hour. Now there's... Um, difficulty in reconciling the different time accounts in, in the Gospels. You know, some of it was Roman time, some of it was Jewish time, etc. Third hour means the third hour after sunrise, according to Henry Morris, using the usual Jewish nomenclature at the time. So they make it about 9 a.m. Many years later, John, writing mainly for Gentile readers, used the Roman nomenclature, commenting that Jesus was before Pilate at about the sixth hour, uh, uh, John 19:14, which we read. Since the Roman day started at midnight, this would have been about 6 a.m. So, uh, all indications are that Jesus was taken to Pilate around 6 a.m. He was examined by Pilate. He was crucified about 9 and died around 3. That makes the most sense to me. Jesus crucified about 9 a.m. He was upon the cross for about 6 hours. Darkness covered the land from noon to 3 and Jesus gave up the ghost shortly thereafter, the atonement being accomplished. Some think he was crucified at noon and darkness lasted until three. But there are other events that occur while Jesus is on the cross that do not take place in darkness. This is an indication that he was placed upon the cross somewhat earlier than noon. Now, one time frame that is agreed upon without controversy is the darkness over the land from the sixth to the ninth hours or from noon to 3 p.m. Now, some try to uh, say that this was a solar eclipse, but because of the time of year with the, you know, the uh, Passover taking place, the phase of the moon, it, a solar eclipse was not possible. And Morris mentions concerning this inscription about the king of the Jews, Mark 15, 26. Um, he examines the ones in Matthew, Luke, and John. In Matthew, it says, the accusation over his head is, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. In Luke, this is the king of the Jews. And in John, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. These slightly different versions of the superscription can be combined to indicate that the complete text was, this is Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. 
Also, since the superscription was written in three languages, according to Luke, it's just possible that Matthew recorded the Hebrew version, Mark and Luke the Greek version, uh, with Mark slightly abbreviating it, and John the Latin version. Anyway, there's no contradiction. It's just they give different uh, portions of it. Jesus' true title as an accusation was posted for all to see. But most mock this truth. And when he returns to reign upon the earth, mocking will be put to shame. Two thieves or robbers were crucified with him. Now, Wiersbe says it may be that the message of this sign first aroused the hopes of the repentant thief. He may have reasoned, if his name is Jesus, then he's a Savior, which is the meaning of his name. If he's from Nazareth, then he would identify with rejected people. If he has a kingdom, then perhaps there's room for me. So one thief starts out as a mocker, but he's converted by the suffering of Jesus. It's in Luke chapter 23, verses 39 through 43. It says, One of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, blasphemed him, saying, If you're the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other, answering, rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing that you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. That was all it took. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise this day. What he suffered as no other man has ever suffered, both in the severity and type of suffering, but also the way of his suffering, how he reacted, how he behaved as he suffered so terribly. He was, he was thinking of others. Forgive them. They don't know what they do. Son, here's your mother. Mother, here's your son. He suffered like no other man ever suffered. This also impacted the centurion who had likely seen multiple men suffer and die by crucifixion. No man ever died like this man. Now Henry Morris again says the scripture was thus fulfilled. Isaiah 53.9 He made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. In Isaiah 53.12 Therefore I will divide him a portion with the great. He shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death. So he's going to divide him a portion with the great, but he's, he's dead. <laughs> and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. It requires a resurrection. Uh, we are thus certainly justified in regarding the amazing chapter of Isaiah 53, 1-12 as a prophetic picture of Christ's substitutionary death on the cross, just as Psalm 22, verses 1-31 through 31 also describes His crucifixion in much detail. So they blasphemed Him upon the cross. He was blasphemed by those who accused Him of blasphemy. Psalm 22, verses 6-8, through 8, we see this prophesied. Uh, where he says, But I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head, saying, He trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. He's almost word for word what was said. You recall Mark 15, verses 29 and 30. Those who passed by blasphemed Him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha! You who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. And of course, this was the one thing He could not do if He were to save others. 
They began mocking the text of the sign. Kings are not crucified. Kings rule. Mark 15, 31 and 32 says, Likewise, the chief priests also mocking among themselves with the scribes said, He saved others. Himself he cannot save. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross that we may see and believe. They require a sign coming down from the cross which would condemn all mankind to eternal suffering. There would be no sacrifice for sin, no propitiation for the wrath of God towards sinners. But to them, this proves that he was not who he claimed to be. How could he be executed by mere men? Three days later, they may have had second thoughts, but probably not. They themselves said he saved others. I think they doubtless said this mocking him, that uh, what they testified to was the truth, uh, mocking him and that he saved others. J. Campbell Morgan says, That was a fact which even they could not deny, that he saved others. Everywhere in Jerusalem, in all the towns and villages and hamlets throughout the countryside were those whom he had saved. But I do think that they said this mockingly. They didn't believe that he had truly saved anyone. John chapter 1, verses 11 and 12 says, He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God to those who believe in his name.